Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you're a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, growing abundantly, and if you want to improve your overall life. My name is Jay Fansom, and I've made it my purpose to unbox and share the amazing stories from people of every profession all over the world. I'm grateful that you're here today. Let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. you guys a question before we learn more about whose story will be unboxed today my question to you is have you ever been told by someone that your idea won't ever work that you are useless and you won't ever amount to anything i know i have and my guest today is no stranger at all to being told that will never work and he was told this funny enough when he found a little company called Netflix. Now, imagine if for a moment my guest had have given up, if he had have thrown in the towel and if he had have listened to this person say, that will never work. I personally don't believe we would have Netflix today. So for those of you that are thinking about quitting, don't because you never know exactly where that idea or that that business will go. It's often the ones that continue going despite the challenges in front of them, despite the the tough days, will eventually reach the top. And my guest today is none other than Mark Randolph. He is, like I was saying, the founder and founding CEO of Netflix. Now, for those of you that don't know anything else about Mark, I'll share with you his illustrious bio, but I guarantee you he's much more than just the founder and CEO of Netflix. Mark is a veteran Silicon Valley entrepreneur, advisor, and investor. He also uh, laid much of the groundwork for a service, Netflix, that has grown to well over 100 million subscribers worldwide and fundamentally altered how the world experiences media today. We now love and enjoy Netflix and all the the movies that we can stream in the comfort of our own homes. We can eat Ben and Jerry's sitting on the couch without a worry in the world, really, because Mark didn't give up when someone told him that will never work. Mark also served on the Netflix board of directors until retiring from the company in 2003. Mark's career as an entrepreneur spans over four decades. Uh, He's founded or co-founded six other successful startups mentored hundreds of early stage entrepreneurs, and as an investor has helped see dozens of successful tech ventures and also unsuccessful ones at that as well. Most recently, he co-founded analytics software company Looker Data Sciences, where he now serves as director. Outside of the tech and startup world, Mark sits on the board boards of Chubby Sports, Augment Technologies, and Environmental Advocacy Group 1%, for the planet and the International Outdoor Leadership School, which he's now been involved with for most of his life. He's a resident of Santa Cruz, California. Mark also travels and speaks all over the world and probably still manages to go surfing more than you do. He's got an amazing podcast, pretty much the title of his book, That Will Never Work, which begs me to tell you about his best-selling book, That Will Never Work. Go and get a copy 
of it. Trust me, you won't regret it. it. He dives deep into the story of how Netflix started and his own story as well. Now, this conversation you're about to listen to or this story really unboxed is amazing. It's inspirational. It's something that you guys have never actually heard Mark talk about if you've heard him on other shows because we go into places that Mark doesn't really cover, which is great for you guys because there's new content to listen to, right? So with that all being said, uh, I would love for you guys to share this one around to your friends and your family. Let them know uh, of this episode. Also, if you can subscribe over on all the platforms, YouTube, uh, Spotify, Apple, everything. And if you could leave a five-star rating and review over on Apple Podcasts, once again, goes a long way in building this incredible community. I always appreciate each and every one of you that leaves a review. Um, it really helps me get more amazing guests like Mark on the show so I get to unbox this story for you guys as a way to help inspire, motivate, educate, and challenge each and every one of you to become better in your life today. All righty, everyone, I've talked enough, but this conversation really did work. So let's dive into the story box right now and listen to the inspirational story of the man who didn't give up, who showed people that did work, the story of Mark Randolph. Oh, it's a pleasure being with you. And listen, inside the covers, it's the same book. So you'll graduate one of these days to the hardcover version, I, I promise you. I'm pretty sure I will. Is <laughs> the words inside the matter the most? Huh? And I could have gone on and on and on in your bio because you've done so many amazing things. Um, but I'm really curious about all of that, which we'll no doubt get into very shortly. But Mark, I normally start off all my conversations with one particular question that I love asking, which is, "What does success look like for you?" Well, success for me is pretty clear. Um, and I was lucky enough to have figured out the ingredients for it pretty early in my life. And I've kind of decided that if you can figure out what you're good at and you can figure out a way where you get to do that most of the time, I would consider that success. And I'm lucky because the thing that I'm good at and I really enjoy doing is early stage company stuff. And for the most part, I've been able to do that for most of my life. So that's success uh, right there. I guess if I was going to layer on one additional component, it's being able to do those things and maintaining some balance in your life. Um, and I've been pretty effective at that as well. I mean, I, I kind of consider myself almost the luckiest person that you're ever going to meet in that I have gotten a chance to do this thing that I love doing, that I am pretty good at it. Um, and then I also have time for the other things that are important to me. Mm, you are good at it. And I'm curious, like you, there's two things that I want to go down. But the first one that I want to sort of ask you is more around the balance aspect of life. And you mentioned you say you're pretty good at creating this kind of balance for one's life. I'm curious, how have you been able to do that? Well, I focus on it. This is not something which just happens. Um, I decided really early on in my life that I was not going to be a one-dimensional entrepreneur. The entrepreneurship thing, you can't stop. I mean, I'm compelled to do that. Uh, I knew this was the way I wanted to spend my life. But there's other things to me besides being um, an entrepreneur. You know, for one, I'm married, um, married to my best friend. I have three kids and I vowed a long time ago that I was not going to be one of those entrepreneurs who's on their sixth company, but also on their sixth life. Mm -hmm. um, I also, as a hobby uh, or as a passion, I guess is a better way to say it, is I'm an outdoors person. Uh, the things that really make me whole is getting out and doing challenging, fun things out in the, the wild. You know, whether that's mountain biking or whether that's climbing or whether it's surfing or kayaking, um, it's important to me. And those, unfortunately, are hobbies you can't squeeze in between your 10 o'clock call and your two o'clock meeting that you've got to make space for them as with a family. Um, and so I said, I'm, if I'm going to make this happen, I better figure out ways to block my life out 
that I can get all three things done. And I'm not saying it's easy at all. It's very hard, especially uh, when you're in the depths of a startup, because there's times when there's a level of intensity, which is hard to walk away from where things are happening all the time. There's crises, people need you. But one of the really valuable things I earned, learned as an entrepreneur is that life goes on. Hmm. That even though you say to yourself, oh, I could make that decision better, or this deal really needs me to be involved. The reality is, is yes, maybe you're right. Maybe the deal would go a bit smoother if you were involved. Yes, maybe the decision would be a little bit better if you were the one who waited in there and had your uh, way to weigh in on it. Mm. But would that delta of difference be important? And the answer is almost always no. Mm. So in terms of, I guess we live in a very noisy world. For a lot of young people, they find it difficult to be or create this balanced lifestyle. I mean, we're constantly busy. We're constantly thinking of new things. So I guess for you, like I, I personally want to be exactly like you, create this balanced lifestyle, have, I know it's not easy, but what would you say to a young person that is struggling to create a balanced lifestyle for themselves? Well, the first thing is you better say it's a priority. Uh, this is not something you squeeze in. And what I think gets a lot of people in trouble, at least when they're trying to balance their family with their startup, is uh, they go, I'll deal with that in the time that's left over. And there ends up not being time left over. You know, my wife and I had this policy, which I started well before Netflix, where every Tuesday, and without fail, I would leave work at five o'clock, which for a startup is like leaving at noon. I'd leave work at five o'clock and we would have a date night, rain or shine. And at the beginning, that's brutal because there are crises, but you begin saying, we're going to wrap this crisis up by five. Okay, you've got to talk to me. Well, we're going to talk on the way to the car. But what's remarkable is that if you stick with it, eventually everyone realizes Mark is serious. Uh, I can't come to him at 4.30 with a crisis. He's going to not want to deal with it. I can't schedule a meeting for seven o'clock on Tuesday. He's not going to show. Um, and eventually, people get used to that and it gets easier. But the bigger benefit, and I'll come back, like how do you do it if you're a young person? The bigger benefit is that it forms culture. And you know, I'm saying how important to me balance is. And I've always said in my company, I want my employees to have balanced lives. And it's one thing to say it, but you need to model that behavior. And by modeling that I took it seriously, that I was willing to make these sacrifices to make sure I spent time with my family, with my personal um, passions. I was signaling, I would support other people in doing the same thing. But listen, here's a specific tactic. Most entrepreneurs suffer from uh, excess of planning. They want to take this idea and they want to think about it and they want to study it and they want to put together a business plan and work on the pitch deck and they just they are, keep this thing in their head. And so so much of what I do as a mentor and on the podcast is push people. I go, get your idea out of your head into the real world. So my advice is think less and do more. But when it comes to establishing balance, it's the opposite. If you haven't decided in advance what it is you want, the odds of you getting it are pretty slim. So I always advise you, you've got to plan how you're going to make this happen. How do you make sure, in my case, that I get to go up to um, kayak the Noatak River in Alaska, which takes three bush plane trips and takes uh, 10 days of paddling and carving out two weeks? It's hard. Mm. But I make that decision a year in advance and I figure out how I'm going to do it. I prep for it. How am I going to get ready to go? How am I going to recover when I get back? How am I going to make sure I have time for the special events in my family's life so that I can be there for when they're young? How do I make sure I'm there when they have dinner before they go to bed? And okay, I can go back to work afterwards. But if you haven't planned this out, it's really, really hard. Was there ever a time for you, Mark, where you didn't honor that commitment at 
leaving work at five o'clock and you were late to your meeting with your wife? Of course. Um, you know, I'm very involved with a uh, wilderness leadership school. It's called Knowles. And it was founded by a gentleman named Paul Petzl. And one of his most famous expressions was rules are for fools. Um, and he was talking about how, especially in the wilderness, you have to use situational awareness. You can't blindly apply the exact same formula to everything because circumstances are always different. So I say always without fail, rain or shine, because it requires that discipline to make it happen at all. Mm. But absolutely, there's occasions where things come up, which listen, honey, I really feel badly. We're going to have to move it till tomorrow or we're going to have to be do it at 630 mm. or we're going to have to have a date night out on the patio after the kids go to bed. Um, but believe me, it was few and it was far between. But uh, listen, rules are for fools. You've got to recognize that sometimes even the most firmly held principles have to bend. Mm. I'm going to remember that saying now. Rules are for fools. <laughs> so good. Um, I'm curious, Mark, how did you meet your wife and what has been one of the biggest lessons that you've held dear from her in your own life? Uh, I, one of my first jobs out of school, my second job out of school, as a matter of fact, was I was running a ghost town resort in the mountains in Colorado, in the United States, a little place up in the mountains with um, cabins. And it was on the Colorado River. And it was probably 50 miles from a big ski resort called Vail. And I was running this thing, which has, I could have told stories about that forever. That was Mark Randolph gets cash flow 101 uh, drilled into him. But there was a bar and a restaurant. But we shut down in uh, just after American Thanksgiving, which is the end of November, mm -hmm. and don't reopen up again until the spring. And so I was kind of caretaking this place over the winter. And you heard me say it was 50 miles from Vail. So I would end up going uh, into Vail and staying with a buddy of mine who worked for on the ski patrol at Vail. And I would stay in his house on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and ski all day. And then on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, his days off, he'd come back and we'd hang out uh, up in the at this huge resort, which was closed. Um, and it was pretty fun. And my friend on the ski patrol had two female roommates. And one day, their good friend from college happened to come out to visit to stay with the friends. And they said, hey, we're all going up to State Bridge, which is the name of the resort, for the weekend. We want to come. Uh, and Lorraine came up with the friends. She spent three days hanging out as we all kind of uh, had really fun just by ourselves up in the middle of nowhere in the snow. And she never went back. Was it? And, go ahead. No, you go. You go. It's your story. Uh, no, the story's over. I was going to say, what did I learn uh, from her? Uh, it's it's just remarkable. It's that. And this, this is, this is trite. I'm, I'm, I won't present myself as a marriage or relationship expert, you know, but, uh, uh, we, I'm still married to her. <laughs> we still, uh, she's still my best friend. Um, it's, you know, we both learned you have to make this relationship, uh, a priority that it's not something that just happens that a lot of times communicating about painful or difficult or scary things requires forcing yourself to do it. Mm. Um, and I'd say, here's the biggest success. Okay, now we're getting into the mushy stuff. I don't talk a lot about this. Um, I think my wife and I have had this healthy competition forever about who can do more for the other person. Mm. Um, and that. it's a really interesting way to structure a dynamic is I... I'll go, I'll be trying to figure out to do more for her than she does for me. How can I surprise her? And uh, listen, listen, couples fight, couples have hard times, but on the whole, um, I think, I think we've made it. I'm not good. <laughs> another, another 30 years to go or so. So 
I mean, like you, you're doing something right because <laughs> like, honestly, you're still married to her, which is congratulations. That's not an easy thing, especially in the business world and so many distractions all around us. Um, today, like I've always admired the old generation, how they've been able to, they choose their partner and they stay with them for for years and they're still just as much, if not more in love with them than when they first met them. And I'm curious, Mark, for yeah, you, I, you, you go, go for it. Go for it. It might actually lead to no, that. No, no, please. I, I, I'm sorry. I keep cutting you off. I don't, I don't, you're, I'm sure you have these great questions queued up. I'm just kind of, I was just going to say, I passed this really interesting point, which I think people who are listening, who are maybe have been in a relationship for a long time should calculate, which is about three years ago, I passed the point where I'd spent more of my life with her than without her. And we had a, a little uh, celebration of having passed. When I passed the halfway point, I'm a little bit older than she did. Then a little bit later, she passed the... Uh, the halfway point. Um, and you know, it's, uh, so far, um, so far so good. So in terms of, uh, I guess, risks in relationships, I don't think I've ever heard you mention towards the biggest family risk that you've ever taken. You've spoken about the biggest risk in your business, but not necessarily in your family. Ah, it's a really interesting question. You know, they, <laughs> we had a interesting um, scenario happen to me not long after we were married in that our house burned down and um, it didn't burn to the ground, but it was so severely smoke damaged. We, we weren't home at the time and we couldn't live in it. And when that happens, these cleaning companies come in and they basically take every single thing you own and they take it back to a warehouse and they clean it all. And then because you have no place to live, they put it all into boxes and move it into a warehouse. So Lorraine and I are living in my parents' um, basement um, and everything we own is in boxes in a warehouse. And then I get this interesting job offer. This is, we're back in the East Coast of the United States in New York. In Connecticut, pardon me. And we get a, I got a job offer from a mail order company in California uh, that's trying to do a turnaround. And they want me to come out and see if I could turn them around. And we're kind of, and at the time, this was in January, it was a brutal cold snap. I mean, it was many, many degrees below freezing. Yeah, it, you know, negative 15C or something like that. Really cold. Mm. Um and uh, we're looking at each other and saying, well, everything we own is in boxes in a warehouse. It is brutally cold outside. We're living in my parents' basement. What do you say? Let's uh, basically emigrate to uh, a different country, which is California. <laughs> and, um, and I have to say that was a pretty big risk because both of our families were on the East Coast. Uh, my whole job network was on the East Coast. All of my, all of our university friends were on the East Coast, and the two of us flew there with nothing. Uh, had our boxes shipped to us, and boom, there we were in California. And it was the two of us against the world in a way. Listen, don't feel too sorry for me. And California is a pretty spectacularly beautiful place to live, and that was we we're living actually in Carmel which people pay a lot of money to vacation there. We were living there. Um, and, but it turned out to be fantastic because it took me from, it put me in the tech business. Mm. It took me out of old school New York and dropped me right into California, right at the dawn of the technology boom. Mm. Um, and that ended up probably being the luckiest thing that ever happened to me. What a story. Going back to, I guess, how you got started doing all this, the tech company startups, being an entrepreneur, uh, an investor. Did you ever see yourself doing that from a young kid? What did you want to be? No, no, of course not. I mean, I had no, first of all, I had no clue what I wanted to be until I was probably, you know, almost 30. 
So I hope anyone listening who's young is gets the message, which is relax. I'm you gonna need to know what, you don't need to know worry what you're gonna be when you grow up. You know, don't worry if you don't know or haven't found this passion yet. It took me a long time. Um and certainly I wasn't thinking about tech. This this I'm look, I mean, those who are seeing this video, I am I've been around a long time. When I started, there was no such thing as tech. Um I, I predate a personal computer, so that it was there was no point in that. Um, I did realize what I love to do, and I realized I did love to solve these problems that seemed like no one else was solving. I did realize I learned to start things, and at the time, it was starting magazines, it was starting clubs. Uh, it, that I was filling gaps in a different way. So yes, at very on, I realized, oh my God, I love doing this. And even when I went to university, I was essentially majoring in extracurricular. You know, I was running the outing club and putting together programs and trying things. I, you know, I was starting a, you know, starting a magazine at school. I was taking this opportunity to build stuff from scratch. Mm. So in some ways, yes, I've been doing this my whole life, but the fact that you could actually make a living doing that. I didn't stumble into that until I was nearly 30. So in terms of all of these businesses that you have uh, started or run for quite some time, out of all of the, all of your life, which one would you say, or what is your greatest achievement and why? Oh, that, <laughs> uh, Let's see. Um, there's a, it, I entirely, I guess the question really is, let's see how Mark frames yeah. his greatest achievement. <laughs> um, so listen, I'm just going to jump to the punchline. And then if we want to talk about some of the more it, detailed intricacies of this, we can. But listen, seriously, seriously, the biggest achievement is that started seven companies Mm -hmm. or had a hand in starting seven companies and two of them have multi-billion dollar market caps. I think three of them, maybe four of that IPOs, um, one, a complete crash and burn, um, all of them successful in some ways. So the achievement was not in doing that. The achievement was doing that and staying married, uh, to the same woman uh, the achievement was doing that and having my kids grow up knowing me and as best I can tell, liking me. Mm. And for the most part, still getting out and doing more surfing, mountain biking, uh, climbing and backcountry skiing than most people do. That is the achievement I'm most proud of. Um, certainly Netflix is by that aside, Netflix is probably the, obviously the most well-known so that's an achievement that's just ridiculous. I mean, who, but who the hell could have known that was going to happen? Um, Looker, which I did after Netflix, in some ways was more economically successful. You know, we IPO, Netflix did its IPO, which in some ways is selling the company uh, at a $300 million market cap. Uh, we sold Google for $2.6 billion, sold Looker to Google for $2.6 billion. So that was a 10 times bigger sale. So is that a bigger success? I don't know. Other ones were so much fun. I mean, I'm a, I'm a direct marketing geek. Mm -hmm. So the two mail order companies I started were hugely fun. Um, starting a magazine, which I did, you know, as an amateur university, but then doing it for real, I did, which did two of those was um, so fascinating. Cause it's such a different, weird business. So they've all got these uh, accomplishments and achievements I'm proud of in different ways, depending upon how you define it. But it all has to come back to, again, you asked the right question at the beginning, which is how does Mark define success? Mm. Um, and the fact that I was able to do all those things while maintaining a balanced life and doing the things that were important to me, oh, I'm pretty oh, proud of that. I was waiting for you to mention Netflix in there some, somewhere. And I think you, you mentioned it perfectly because you mentioned your family first, then you mentioned Netflix. Now that's an important thing because Netflix is a beast in of itself. But what I'm curious about is you mentioned also in, in that response, 
paid all these companies for multi-billion dollar deals. What was the, the less, your first lesson that you learned when you earned your first million dollars? It was, wow, life is unpredictable. Because the, the first million dollars came working at a software company, which is where I, the second company I ended up at in California. Uh, we went, I moved out to California to join this mail order company, which was selling computer supplies. Mm. Uh, turned it around and sold it. And there I was in Carmel saying, what do I do from here? And ended up getting a job at a big software company called Borland International. Mm. And that was the transition from Mark being a direct marketing guy to being a tech guy. And it was a smallish company when I joined it. And I was not the CEO. I was, the, I was running their direct marketing, their direct sales, their B2C division. Mm. But we built that, I built that division from being pretty much nothing into being almost 40% of the revenues. And this is leading to the first million dollars because I had equity in this company. Uh, through stock options, which was a new concept uh, to me. And uh, the company ended up doing phenomenally well. And little by little, this paper false thing, which my wife and I were going, okay, gave all these options, goody, all of a sudden became worth something. And eventually that value became well more than a million dollars. But what was really interesting was one day I was at a bar in Hong Kong with our VP of sales. There you go. There's a little two guys walk into a bar. Um, <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't even know why I need to give you that detail just to kind of let you know what a jet setter life I used to live. Um, <laughs> it's where all great ideas start. <laughs> yeah. And he pulled out a cocktail napkin and we jotted it down. No. We were talking about, I was going, gosh, the, the stock is doing crazy. And he goes, well, uh, ho hopefully you've been selling a lot of it. And I went, no, what, why would I do that? He goes, just keep going up. And he goes, yeah, but it's all right now. It's all on paper. He goes, listen, here's listen. The lesson is, uh, you know, bulls make money, bears make money, but pigs get slaughtered. He goes, you're will be grand. If you're doing a great job with the company, they're always going to give you more. So the lesson is when it, as soon as it vests, sell it, take money off the table. And that I got that next morning, I called the broker and said, all right, what, best my options. Let's sell what I have. And he just told a lot more to come. Um, I took the money off the table mm. and believe me, People, including me, were saying a month, two months later, when the stock is 20% higher, going, oh, that was stupid. If you had just held on to it. But then, of course, there's a big correction and the stock plummets. And all the people who had all their wealth tied up in that stock are lamenting it. Mm. And what I was saying is, this is great. You know, listen, if it does great, there's more and I'll ride what I have left as the upside. Mm. And if it doesn't, I've taken money off the table on that cash they can't take away from me. So, there's the lesson from the first million dollars. And I've never stopped doing that. Even still, Netflix was hard because you weren't allowed to because of the position that I was in. Uh, it was the wrong signal. But certainly Looker, um, every opportunity I had to sell stock, I did. Um, and believe me, it did great when finally goes. I still have plenty left. But I, it, I've been in Silicon Valley long enough to know it is absolutely 100% impossible to know what's going to happen. A disaster can strike at any minute, and you're a nut if you have everything wrapped up in betting on the future. I think that's a profound lesson. Pigs get slaughtered. I think people are going to remember that. <laughs> but yeah. Um, speaking about Netflix, because I would be, I'd have a lot of people very angry at me if I didn't actually mention this in the, in the conversation. Um, so you wrote this book that will never work. Why did you decide to title the book that specifically? And what has been the worst piece of advice you've ever received during that entire process? 
So let's start with the title. I mean, the book is called That Will Never Work. Uh, my new podcast is called That Will Never Work. And I, that name, that title is, resonates with me because that is what every single person told me when I was pitching the idea for what eventually became Netflix. You know, my investors said that'll never work. And my employees, ones who didn't join, say that'll never work. And listen, despite how much I love her, my wife said that will never work. Um, And everyone has had that experience. You know, everybody has had that moment where you wake up with this amazing idea and then you rush into the kitchen and you tell your spouse or you come to the office and tell your boss to your employees and everyone says that'll never work. And it's just because it's so profoundly impossible to tell a good idea from a bad idea that the only way to tell is to do it. And that is what the lesson is of the book. That is what the lesson is of the podcast is that the only way you're going to figure these things out is by doing it. And what I'm trying to do both in the book and the podcast is share all those tips and tricks and secrets that I've learned over 40 years as an entrepreneur to help other people take these ideas out of their head, make them, make them real. Uh, That's what that will never work means. It means ignore it. Uh, Nobody knows anything, which is my second favorite expression. No one can tell in advance if it's a good idea or a bad idea. Of those seven companies I started, like I said, nobody could have known in advance which one would be which. The only way to find it out is to do it. And if you haven't accepted that lesson, then you really can't be an entrepreneur. Mm. What, and did you have any like competition at all when you decided to start Netflix? Like were any other like Stan or any other, were you just standalone? Well, first of all, in Australia, you see a very different version of uh, what Netflix looks like. Uh, But when we started Netflix in 1998, it was a DVD rental by mail company. So if you wanted a movie, you didn't stream it. You didn't download it. We mailed it to you on a DVD in a little red envelope and there was due dates and there was uh, late fees. And there were two reasons why everybody said that will never work. And the first one was the fact that they said, eventually next week, everyone is going to d- download or stream movies. It's a digital media. Uh, and so who's going to want to do DVD rental by mail? And they were right to the degree that it would happen. They were just wrong about how long it would take. But the other reason that everyone said that'll never work is there was this little company in the United States and all over the world, as a matter of fact, called Blockbuster Video, which was a video rental chain. And Blockbuster, in April of 1998, when we launched, had 9,000 stores. Uh, They had 60,000 employees. Uh, they were doing $6 billion in revenue. So did we have anybody we were competing with? We had the biggest 800-pound gorilla that you can ever imagine. Uh, we were saying, why don't you rent DVDs by mail from us when pretty much every single person in the United States and in most of the world can throw a rock and it would hit a blockbuster video store. So the challenges for us were just astronomical. I mean, it, the fact that everyone said that would never work, they were the sane ones. Um, I was the, I was the nut, which mm-hmm. thought there just might be a way to uh, make this work. So originally when you first started Netflix, did you envision it being what it is today at all? Oh yeah. In fact, I sat down and I said, uh, I sketched out a plot for a uh, house of cards and no, I, who the hell has any, never, not in a, not in a million years. Really, um, you have a vision that maybe there's a more effective way for people to rent movies, which is where it starts. You go, this is a frustrating, difficult process. You go to a video store, you can't find something to watch. Um, You have due dates, you have late fees. Uh, There's got to be a better way. That was what the vision was. What that better way was I had some things I wanted to try, but I had no idea. And I certainly go, if this works, yes, eventually 
people are going to not want to get a DVD mailed to them. They're going to want to stream it or download it. And so we should download it. We should probably structure this in a way that when that time comes, we can more seamlessly transition to that world. But believe me, that is as far um, as I, I never envisioned that we'd be making our own movies, never envisioned producing our own television shows, never envisioned that we would uh, be in pretty much every country in the world. And, you know, Netflix and chill. <laughs> I, I promise I never saw that coming. <laughs> I don't think anyone saw that coming, to be honest with you, until someone created the trend with, with Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> so, um, Mark, I'm curious, though, like, why did you, after all this, you had laid the groundwork, everything, it was starting to grow. Why did you decide to leave? Well, I left the company six, seven years in. And this is the perfect place to tell that because it's consistent with what we've said the whole time. Is I started off this entire conversation by sharing with you my definition of success, which was getting to do something that you're really good at and that you love. And what I realized early on, you know, when I was in my late 20s, was that that was early stage companies. It was the startup thing. It was solving these really complicated problems with a handful of really smart people. And by six, seven years in, Netflix was a much bigger company. We had had our IPO. We had the cash. We were hiring unbelievably talented people. And so I still, I mean, I still love the company you know, the way you'd love a child. This was my baby. I loved it. But it was dawning on me that I didn't necessarily love what I was doing. Mm. And perhaps more importantly, I wasn't very good at it. I mean, when companies get larger, the style of management, the skill set is very different. And it's not something that I enjoy or that I'm good at. And again, I'm going, well, what is success? Um, it's getting to do the things you're good at and enjoy. And I decided I have the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. And I was able to move myself out of Netflix in a gradual, um, sequential way that allowed people to pick up the things I was handling and the skill set that I had. So I didn't disrupt the uh, company. And I've stayed very, very tight, close friends with Reed Hastings, with all the rest of the team there and the company itself. And now Reed Hastings, my co-founder, is having the time of his life running a uh, $250 billion market cap company. And I'm having the time of my life getting to sit down with early stage entrepreneurs, helping them solve problems. I still get to sit around that table with the really smart people and solve the really interesting problems. And I get to go home uh, at five o'clock. I love that. Two quick final questions for you, if you don't mind, because I want to be respectful of your time. Do you think that you will ever in the future serve on the board again, just as a, like a advisor at all? No, pretty close to zero chance. Not because it wouldn't be intellectually fascinating, Mm-hmm. Uh, because the strategic challenges of a company like Netflix and the things that are wrestling with it would be so fascinating to uh, contribute to. Talk about solving interesting problems. But the reality is that the reason you pick someone for your board is to add value strategically or to provide good governance. And for the types of problems that Netflix needs to solve in the future, I don't have the background or the skill set for either of those. Netflix is no longer a technology company. It's an entertainment company. I mean, they, they've, they've anointed Ted Sarandos, who was their head content officer, as the co-CEO. Uh, we have more employees now in Hollywood than we do in Silicon Valley. Uh, it has to scale internationally. These are all issues they have to deal with the government regulations. These are all issues that I don't have any experience with. I'd be a bad, would, if they did that, besides being flattered, I'd be disappointed um, in their judgment in thinking that I had a lot to, uh, to add there. Um, I want to get, I'd be delighted to be picked for the board for the, uh, the Netflix of the future, which is only 10 people right now. 
Mm. Wow. I was always fascinated by that. So thank you for, for sharing. Um, this is my final question, Mark, and it's a hypothetical one. So I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. Your friends have decided to put together a film for you, a highlight film or an actual film, whichever one you want, of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world I got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of an argument. <laughs> and they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? I would certainly so a bunch of things flashed into my mind so without this being a really well thought together film that I'm describing um, one of the things besides the things that we've beaten to death here about the fact of the time that I've spent with my family and the time that I've gotten to spend climbing some of the iconic peaks in the world and all those crazy things. So yes, I'd, I'd like to have people see that he was able to do this. Um, I'd like them to see some of the choices I made. For example, after I brought my eight-year-old son with me um, for the Netflix IPO. You know, we flew to New York um, had this huge, uh, I, the IPO happened. My life was transformed in some ways. Um, but afterwards we just got in a taxi and rather than going to some fancy dinner to have steak and champagne, we went and I, I had never, he had never had New York pizza. And I go, well, that is something that we were, this is the perfect time to remedy. And I, and, and I decided that was the appropriate way to celebrate this accomplishment. But, you know, the, the thing that's probably the most interesting for me that's happened in the last 15 years is kind of realizing in some ways what my purpose is here, uh, that I have these things I've learned. I have 40 years of experience of learning how to take an idea and make it real, how to take the real idea and make it into a company, how to make people find balance in their life, how to, uh, how to help people find balance in their life, how to have a stronger relationship with your team, how to build a good company culture. And I've kind of realized that to take that with me to my grave is a tremendous waste. And that there's so many people who are struggling to have this great idea. I've always wanted to do this and they don't know where to start. They don't know how to get past those first stages. They've done the first stages and all of a sudden this is way harder than they thought. They don't know which way to go. Wow, they have early success. Now how do I scale it? And I realized that the powerful thing I can do is help people do that. You know, it's what the reason I wrote the book. It's the reason I speak pre-COVID all over the world and still do it, you know, virtually. It's the reason I have the podcast I have now where I am not interviewing celebrities. I am not talking about people who've been big successes. I spend my podcast talking to people who are in the trenches, either just struggling to figure out how to validate their idea or have gotten this early traction and they're trying to figure out how to scale it or are struggling with how to balance their home life with their all of a sudden overwhelming work life. So if the pick, if the movie could somehow show not necessarily me, but show a bunch of these people that I've managed to help take this idea they always dreamed could happen and actually make it happen, that would be pretty cool. Mark Randolph. The guy that wrote the book, that will never work, but his life resembled, uh, <laughs> I love it. So I, I really, truly appreciate your time today, Mark. I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. I've learned a lot. Um, I am in the trenches currently with building this. So I appreciate you making the time out of your busy schedule to come on the Storybox podcast and share your story. So thank you. No, it's certainly uh, certainly my pleasure. Really, really interesting subject. We don't get the too much conversation is about go to market strategy and financing and technology stack, and I think more time has to be spent on uh, the things that you're you're bringing up. And listen, for those of you who are watching in video, I'll give you here's a secret handshake. Here you go. He's he's uh, one of us, Australia. <laughs> he's an honorary Aussie. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Mark, where can people find you, connect with you, learn more about you? 
So certainly the centerpiece for all things Randolph is my website, which is uh, www.markrandolph.com. And that's where you can find uh, links to my podcast, to my blog posts, to all the other stuff that I'm generating, trying to find ways to get people a bit more motivated and informed. And of course, if that's too much for you, you can always follow all my short form ramblings on Twitter at MB Randolph or Instagram. That'll never work. Or LinkedIn. Well, if you can't figure out how to find me on LinkedIn, then you're beyond help. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much, Mike. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the Storybox, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah.